After recording that almost hour-long episode on the Rabbanut, the, the Down the Rabbinate Hole, part one of Down the Rabbinate Hole, uh, I still had what to say, so things were still going. Things were still churning in my mind. And I'm a few days, I'm a, I was a few days behind, meaning if I'm going to try to drop the podcast every week on Sunday, then I was a little bit behind. I dropped that one on Thursday. I'm recording this right after I recorded the last one. Uh, hopefully it'll be a little bit shorter. I always say it's going to be shorter, and then I end up using up almost an entire hour. I'm going to try to make it shorter. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, we started talking about structural issues, how the issues, how, how the problems with the Rabbanut when it comes to conversion, are structural, meaning it's embedded within the structure of modern bureaucratic regulatory regimes that halacha is going to be, that any attempt to apply halacha within that is going to be distortive, right? That is going to mess with the equilibrium that we demonstrated applies, you know, that there's a, there's the tent that inheres within the tension between the halacha and the agada, between the bright line rules and the uh, between the halacha as formulated and the halacha as, as applied in reality. Right? That all of those things are part and parcel of what makes halacha tick. And that those, those aspects, which are which are really just the, the, I mean, those are the most amazing aspects of halacha. That's what, meaning halacha functioning as, number one, a rule-based system, but also as an evolving human system. That's the bread and butter of halacha. That's, that's what makes halacha tick. And, 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 that's, and that's one of the reasons that I love halacha, and I love studying halacha, and I love learning halacha and learning about halacha to see how, you know, how, how the human side um, shapes, how halacha, meaning halacha is shaped and is shaped by and shapes the Jewish people. Um, you know, and that halacha is, it's not a history of, there's a history of codification and then there's a history of reception. We talked about this a, a little bit two episodes ago. The idea that, um, you know, how, how Shulchan Aruch is not the Shulchan Aruch because Rav Yosef Karo wrote the Shulchan Aruch and therefore there was a Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch was the, was, was, is the Shulchan Aruch because it was accepted, right? Because Klal Yisrael accepted it as, right, or the vast, the overwhelming majority of Klal Yisrael accepted the Shulchan Aruch as, as the code, and that doesn't mean that it is the final word, because we all know that there are plenty of places where halacha does not follow the Shulchan Aruch, but that it's the curriculum and it's the and it's the baseline. You know, and part of that is part of the reception of the of the Shulchan Aruch is the glasses of the Ramah. Part of the reception of the Shulchan Aruch is the inclusion of the Nosei Kalim. These are all part of what made the Shulchan Aruch the Shulchan Aruch, meaning this is all part of how the Shulchan Aruch was, recept, was received. It wasn't received as it is. It was 
it was received and it was processed and it was added to. And that's how and that's how halacha functions. There's always a codification or a creation of halacha, and then there's the reception of that halacha. And that takes us to an area which is really this is the area that exercises me, that fascinates me more than anything else. This is the whole it's it's questions like these that brought me to create, to co-create together with Moshe Shor, uh, the project Hamapa, to to map out circles of rabbinic correspondence through Shelos Uchuvos, through Responsa. And that's the question of, again, not the creation of halacha, but the reception of halacha. And this is a crucial, this is a crucial topic because it also gives us a framing to understand, once again, what is the Israeli chief rabbinate as a historical phenomenon. What is it? What are its precedents? What is? What are the theories behind it? And how do those? How do the theories or the ideas behind them um, match up with the historical reality? Okay, so we have this idea that at one point there was a rigidly hierarchical halachic system. It's based in, I think the Rambam codifies this in Hilchos Sanhedrin, and it's based on Gemara and Sanhedrin, that you had a, you know, a rigidly hierarchical court system. If you had, a, a, if you had questions, you know, it happens to me that all the questions being dam badam, din din, questions mainly, you know, criminal and 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 mishpat questions, right, monetary questions, whatever it was, um, meaning like there's no, even the Rambam doesn't talk about how, like when it came to questions like, uh, you know, like, um, you know, Yeridea type questions that they had to be asked to a Sanhedrin, right? Is this kosher or is this not kosher? They might deal with questions like, I ate this, like the post facto questions. I ate this, therefore, you know, do I do I deserve to be punished for that? Um, but the questions that, but the initial question is this kosher? That could have been answered by. There's no evidence. There's no or there's no suggestion that it was necessary to go to a Sanhedrin for something like that. Things like there's no evidence that a Sanhedrin had to had to decide what nusach uh, tefillah was outside of a you know, a basic, you know, even the Anshik and the Zagadola, who were Kovea Tfila, it doesn't mean that they wrote the Siddur. It means that they set an outline, they set up the skeleton, the basic scaffolding of, of the Siddur, which has been filled in over thousands of years, right? And has been, um, the Gemara and Brachos, Tfilos are very freestyle, right? When the Gemara, when the Gemara talks about how in benching, that you have to mention Eretz Chemda Tova Uruchava, Right, and if you miss one of those, then you weren't Yotze, the second bracha. It's basically saying, like, okay, these brachos are freestyle. These brachos are not, they're not written in a bencher somewhere. You have freestyle, and that's why, you know, being asked to lead the zimun wasn't just a question of, like, you know, saying Rabbi Samir Velen Benchin. It was, you were being asked to give the toast. You were being asked to really, um, in an impromptu, you know, give this impromptu bracha that the Gemara says has to include these elements, but otherwise was freestyle. 
so when we talk about a Sanhedrin, right? So, so that's one thing. Right? What were the Sanhedrin's even theoretical jurisdiction? And then there's the question of, was there ever a Sanhedrin in practice, right? And even the Gemaras that talk about uh, the Gemaras that talk about a Sanhedrin, you know, they're um, Yedid Nafshi Chaim Seiman, Professor Chaim Seiman wrote an article a number of years ago about how there's rarely a case that the Gemara describes um, where Sanhedrin put someone to death where there was actually due process. It was always a Sohorah Shah or a Bezdin Shaltz Dukim. Aye, they burned this one at the stake. Oh, that was a Bezdin Shaltz Dukim. Aye, they, you know, they killed 80 women, 80 witches in one day in Ashkelon. Oh, that was a Horah Shah. Meaning, there, there was no, like, even the few examples that we have where theoretically a Bezdin was functioning, it, it wasn't functioning according to doctrinaire procedure. Um, and in addition to that, you know, it, there's no evidence that the Sanhedrin ever actually functioned as a legal system. Right? There's no evidence that it could function as a legal system. And this is implicitly noted by Ran, Drushos Aran. Um, and once again, I will refer you to a recent article by Chaim Seiman, published in Tradition, reviewing a couple of books about... Uh, about halacha and the state of Israel, you know, that the Ran implicitly says halacha is not on its own fit to govern. That's the, the whole idea of that, you know, there's two legal systems, there's Mishpat HaMelech and Mishpat HaTorah that the Ran develops. That entire dichotomy comes about because Ran looks at it and is like, halacha is great and I love it, man, and, you know, I'm going to write a commentary on the entire Gemara. Right? And this is the Ron we're talking about, one of the greatest of the Rishonim. <laughs> and then he says, like, but this is not a way to govern a society. There are way too many lacunae. There are way too many... It just doesn't... It, it, it couldn't work. So in that sense, even when Halacha was... Even if there was an imaginary Sanhedrin, it would not exhaust... It would not be the entirety of the legal system. Okay. Except that it has entered the imagination of, you know, we, we do say three times a day, that this, you know, this longing for the restoration of uh, essentially a theocracy, right? Hashem. We are literally asking for theocracy. Like we want God to be our king. We want God to rule over us. The entire Rosh Hashanah liturgy is begging God for theocracy. Now, theocracy... Okay. Another aside. Two minutes. The world according to Fisher. I have no problem with theocracy. Okay. I think theocracy is fine. I think theocracy is great. Theocracy today has is, is a bad word, right? Nobody likes theocracy. Ooh, Iran, terrible theocracy. Ooh, Israel's turning into a theocracy. That's what people use it. People use theocracy as though it's a bad word. I have no problem with theocracy. What I have a problem with is representative theocracy. Okay? Theocracy means that God rules us. Representative theocracy means... <laughs> That we are ruled by people 
claiming to be acting on the authority of God. That's a very different thing. You know, you know, like the old joke about the, you know, the the priest and the rabbi and the right the the priest, the minister and the rabbi. You know, they 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 take money. Like one draws a circle and throws up his money. Right? They all win the lottery together, and you know, so each one takes the money and they say, the first one throw, draws a circle on the ground. I think this joke was in short circuit, was in some popular culture. I'm going way back now. Somebody throws it, one of, the, one of them, you know, the, the priest throws it up and says, well, he draws a circle on the ground. Whatever lands in the circle, I'm going to give to charity. He was so, you know, that's how he wanted to give gratitude to God for winning the lottery. So the minister looks at the circle and says, I'm going to throw it up, and whatever lands outside the circle, I'm going to give to charity, meaning I'm giving even more than, more charity. And then the rabbi comes, he takes his money, he throws it up in the air, and he says, God, keep what you want. Right? Meaning, the joke is that the rabbi knows that God doesn't directly intervene in human affairs, at least not anymore, um, or at least not in any obvious way, more subtle ways. And so the rabbi says, oh, you know, I believe in God. I believe deeply in God. I know that God, he can hoover up all that money if he wants to. But I say, I'm going to throw the money up. Whatever God wants, he should keep. Um, which is, you know, it, that's part of the rabbinic humor that like we deal with. We don't deal with pie in the sky. We don't deal with, you know, we deal with the, the everyday realities. And we deal with a world where that's, it's not disenchanted, but... God's palpable presence, God's direct intervention is not, is not always, is not visible. And so let's apply that joke, the lessons of that joke, to theocracy. It's like, okay, God, you want to punish people for being sinners? Go for it. I would have no problem with that. God, if you want to strike down with lightning, if you want to, you know, if you want to strike with lightning all the pork processing plants in Israel so that they all burn down and say, go ahead. I, I welcome that. Right? What I don't welcome is people claiming to do that, in, people doing that and claiming that it's because that's what, that's what God wants them to do. I think that the situation, the reality in the world today, and even in, you know, in, in, in society in Israel, is too complicated and the reactions are too unpredictable or negative that any attempt to impose uh, halacha, um, you know, any win is also, is any win, any victory is peric, right? Any little, you know, daladamos that you gain for halachic observance is, you know, comes at a loss of um, respect for halacha. I live in Modi'in, where there are very few stores open on Shabbos, but not because it's illegal um, to open stores on Shabbos. It's just that the local establishments have realized, and it happens time and again, they realize that there is a clientele that only keeps kosher, and that if they open, if they open a store on Shabbos, it will lose a lot of its, it'll lose a lot, enough of its clientele that it's not worth it. Meaning that it's better for them to close on Shabbos and gain all that clientele. And of course, you know, there are people that oppose that on the grounds of religious coercion. And it's like, well, what coercion? Nobody's coercing anybody. 
right? This is not, this is pure economics. This isn't theocracy. This is every single person that closed their store on Shabbos. And there are several stores that started by being open on Shabbos and then ended up saying, you know what, I'm closing up shop on Shabbos and I'm going to go get a kosher certification. And every single time that happens, there's a whole hue and cry, you know, that there's a, uh, you know, the religious are taking over our city or whatever it is that they claim ownership over this city. Um, and there's a hue and cry about religious coercion that I somehow like the right to have a stake on Shabbos is like an inviolable, inviolable human right. Um, whatever, you know, I'm perfectly content for there to be a situation where, you know, stores are closed on Shabbos just because it doesn't pay for stores to be open on Shabbos. In fact, I think that that's largely the ideal, right? That communal, the communal norm is, is, is Sabbath observance and that there are sanctions, there are built-in sanctions to violating Shabbos, not government sanctions, but social sanctions, i.e., I will not eat at your store if it's open on Shabbos. Quite simply. Right? And I think that that's, that's the ideal. Okay. Um, getting back to what we were talking about, and I know that, listen, this is the pitfall of having a podcast host who has ADD. Right? I, I say something, I go on a tangent, finish the tangent, try to come back, don't, re don't remember exactly where I was. But we were talking about Halacha and Hamapa and the Israeli chief rabbinate, um, you know, and that part of the, the sorts of questions that exercise me are how Halacha is received and how Halacha is, um, you know, what I call, what I've called in the past, who decides who decides? Ah, yes, just to tie off that other thread. So representative theocracy is bad. I don't like representative theocracy. Theocracy itself is good, is fine. I have no problem with, with representative. I have no problem with theocracy. Let God rule us. All right? Hamela Let God rule over all of us. I just don't want to have to deal with his representatives. Okay, but... Theocracy, you know, so theocracy is baked into the system, right? We we say it three times a day, which is based on Psukim and Yeshaya that describe the Messianic era. Right? It's it's the end of Shabbat, of the Haftarah of Shabbos Chazon. It's a beautiful, beautiful vision, right? but it's theocratic. So how do we square that? How do like so? So what? what that's part of what the vision was. That's part, when we came back to Israel, that, you know, that's baked into Zionism. Baked into Zionism is that the law here will be somehow based on the Torah, based on God's wisdom. And that's a tough nut to crack. But let's look at how Halacha actually develops historically. Um, to see that, and we'll see that this model that we have, this this the model of a hierarchical Sanhedrin type system, uh, it never actually existed, even though there are. Uh, it has value as an imaginary 
as an imaginary system, meaning I think it's important that we imagine it that way. And I think that there are good reasons that it was imagined that way. But once again, the way that it was, it's described by the post game, the way that it's described by the Rambam, the way that it's described by the Mishnah, um, has, you know, by, by their own internal evidence of the, of the Gemara, we see that that's not actually how it functioned in reality. So in order to understand how halacha and the reception of halacha functioned in reality, um, we'll take two extreme models, right? There's uh, the, what I call the, the radically horizontal and radically vertical, or radically hierarchical. Radically horizontal, and this is, there are people that espouse this today. Um, you know, this was, if you look at the founding documents of the IRF, the International Rabbinical Fellowship, it's spelled out explicitly, right? And in an article announcing the founding of the IRF, written by Rabbi Yitz Greenberg and Rabbi Avi Weiss, it's spelled out that it's, they believe in a radically horizontal uh, distribution of halachic power, meaning every rabbi in his community, you know, every community is its own little fiefdom. The rabbi in that community is the halachic sovereign. And there's nobody that can tell the rabbi what to do in his fiefdom. He's in charge. Radically horizontal. It doesn't matter if you're a guy that just barely passed your smicha test or you're the gadolador. In your community, you are, you are the halachic authority, the sole halachic authority. That's the radically horizontal, completely distributed approach. The radically hierarchical approach is more or less what the Rambam describes, right? That there are, there's a high court, and in smaller, bigger town, in bigger towns, there are, you know, you have a Sanhedrin of 71. And you have in larger cities Sanhedrin, you know, Sanhedrin of, of 23, and in smaller places, even smaller places, you have Sanhedrin of three, right? And that there's an entire system of appeals, right? If these guys don't know, you go up to these, and if these guys don't know, you go up to these, right? And smicha is something which also is something that is 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 radically horizontal, right? We you have, I'm sorry, radically is radically hierarchical, right? You have the high court, and then you, each shavit has a court, and then you have specific courts within town, right? And even on Harabayit, you have the Beis Dinagadol, and then you have a secondary Besdin that's also right next to Harabayit, right? And so you have this appeal system. You have these different circuits, right? And you go up the food chain as the case becomes more complex, okay? And that the ultimate Besdin, right? That's the, um, you know, that, that's the final word. The reality. Now let's talk to the reality. Now this is a basic insight. Uh, the late historian, the late great Jewish historian, Yaakov Katz, Jacob Katz, says this at the beginning of Tradition in Crisis. And he says it almost as an aside. He doesn't develop it. But he just puts it out there. He says that rabbinic culture is characterized by... A, an informal or a spontaneous hierarchy, meaning there is a hierarchy. There's clearly a hierarchy, but it's not a formal hierarchy. Nobody is ever appointed to be, you know, the Godlador, the Posekador. Rather, authority is accumulated. 
so now my question is, okay, so how do people accumulate authority? How is authority accumulated? There's no one answer to that question. There's a lot of different answers to that question, and it can have something to do with, it has to do with who your students are. It has to do with, I mean, once you, once you make a mental shift, and you have to make a mental shift in order to see things this way. Once you make a mental shift, you see that everything is baked into this. You realize that shows of chuvos, right, we tend to think of those as court verdicts, court decisions. This rabbi said, gave this verdict. Where in reality, that's not usually what a tshuva is. I mean, sometimes you have masabezdin. Sometimes you have an actual court verdict there. But normally what's going on in a tshuva is that somebody is asking a question and there's no enforcement mechanism. There's no way to, you know, and, and you're talking about people that are corresponding sometimes over long distances, sometimes over interna across international borders. There's no enforcement mechanism. There's no way to ensure that, you know, the, the tshuva is actually being observed and implemented. These are not court verdicts. These are documents, letters that are designed to persuade, to convince. They argue for a certain position, right? If you want to use a legal argument, it's more like a law review article than a, than a court decision. Now, somebody could write a court decision that's very compelling and very convincing because they want other judges to use that decision that same decision in the future, and that's fine. But when you're dealing with an actually constituted court, it doesn't matter what their rationale is. They don't have to give a good rationale. Sometimes they give really lousy rationales because it doesn't matter. Because what they say is the law. They don't have to convince anybody. And sometimes you can see it. You can see that somebody reaches a verdict, somebody makes a decision, and the argumentation is so obviously shoddy, so obviously lousy, so motivated by, you know, by, by, by other motives, by political considerations, by whatever, so full of holes, but it doesn't matter. Because when you have that gavel in your hand, you're the one in charge. And what you say goes and becomes the law. And if somebody disobeys, they can be in contempt of court, or they can be, they can go to jail. That's, that's what it means to have power. Real power. Right? The, the ability to impose your will through force. Rabbis, historically, if they had any actual power, it was severely limited and very, very local. Meaning they may have had the ability in their locales to put somebody in jail or to issue lashes or to put or to excommunicate somebody. They had that power in their communities, but beyond their communities, they had no power. You know, the rabbi in uh, the rabbi in, that the rabbi in Prague could impose his will on the rabbi in Frankfurt in Lohaya what they could have, what they did have, was authority. Meaning, they had esteem, and they had credibility, so that when somebody says something, their, their word was, it carried weight. And that, in turn, does shape 
how things are practiced. Meaning, Rav Moshe Feinstein, pick his, for example, Rav Moshe Feinstein's rulings actually did dictate shul architecture in the United States. It dictated, it's because, directly, because of Rav Moshe's rulings that machitzas were a certain height and built in a certain way and out of certain materials, he directly affected the, the construction of shoals in the United States. Not because he had an inspector going around from shoal to shoal and, you know, government authorization to make sure that, you know, shoals are being built up to Mechitza code, but because he had authority, because his, way, his word carried weight, right? And he had the credibility that if somebody was going to, if there was going to be, let's say, a minimum standard that Rav Moshe was Kovea, that would become the minimum standard. So we're talking about authority, we're not talking about power. Now, Rav Moshe Feinstein, how did, how did everybody know that Rav Moshe Feinstein is the guy? Why wasn't it, I don't know, Rav Menashe Klein? Why wasn't it the Kleisenberger Rebbe? Why wasn't it the Satnaruv? You know, there, there were other, there were other Rabbanim that lived in America. There were other great Talmudic Chachamim, great Poskim, Rav Moshe Bick, who lived in America, who were contemporaries of Rav Moshe Feinstein. Why wasn't their word? Why didn't their word carry weight the same way that he did, the, way, the same way that his did? Well, that's the funny question. That's the hard question, right? That's reception history. That's the people felt comfortable for whatever reasons. And I, I can give a lot of reasons, but that's not the topic now. People felt comfortable asking Rav Moshe. People felt that when they asked Rav Moshe a question, they were on one hand getting a credible answer, an answer that you know, you could rely on that was, he had broad enough shoulders that these are, you know, that these, that, that his answers comport with the balance of halacha. He had that credibility. He had the credibility that he's not motivated by ulterior motives, that he's not, I mean, this is something that uh, Peter Brown talks about in The Holy Man in, uh, in Late Antiquity. Right? The idea that you have to be, in order to gain authority or in order to gain credibility, you have to, you have to demonstrate that you're somehow not of this world, not influenced by the pressures of this world, which is why people tr tended to trust ascetics, people who lived in caves, because you see, oh, this person isn't, you know, isn't attracted by money. This person isn't attracted by power. This person isn't attracted by lust, isn't, you know, isn't attracted to lust. This, you know, this person has credibility as a, as a neutral or as a, if not neutral, then at least um, unbiased arbiter. Because he's just not, he doesn't have those, you know, what the, what the Balayam Musa would call negios. He doesn't have any personal interest. So that's a key part of it, right? If, the, you know, the biggest posek in the world, the greatest posek in the world, if if he issues rulings that always seem to, you know, that, that, that seem to, to show a little bit of favoritism, people are going to stop asking him questions. You know, if he, if he, if he answers in ways that are going to, that are going to pump up his own authority, people are going to stop asking questions, right? So the art of, of the art, and I use that word specifically because it's not a science, the art of gaining credibility of earning trust is a very subtle one and it has to be 
almost behind the scenes, right? Somebody that gets up and says, hey, yeah, I'm the Posegador, I'm putting up a shingle outside my house, outside my house or outside my office, outside my shul, saying, I'm a Godador, I'm a Posegador, you can pretty much ask me anything, uh, right, AMA, you're not going to get a lot of questions on, you're not going to get a lot of questions. Right? It, it's built in other ways. Right? It's built through students. A lot of times it's built through relatives that you start, you see in a lot of Shailos and Chubos, a lot, a, a lot, an inordinate amount of the back and forth is between, you know, you see it says, you know, Achi, Avi, Mechutani, She'er Besari, right? People that are in your immediate family circle or people who are students. And, and it's through them that you start to build up your, 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 your larger reputation. And I think that it, there, there is a conscious effort that goes into this. Right? Sometimes it's unconscious, right? We said about Rav Dovitz Hoffman that he almost was accidentally became the Posek in Germany. But usually it's not accidental. And there are different ways for it to not be accidental. Rav David Katz, right? Many of you probably listened to his podcast. His entire dissertation was on how the Nodbi Yehuda went about becoming the Pose Gadar. Like, meaning he set out to do that. He set out to become that. It was not an accident. Right? And I have some, some things that I've noticed through my projects, my research, that I can that that bolster his argument. So that's how. So halacha functions in a way that's neither the radically hierarchical nor radically distributed horizontal um, model. Each individual rabbi in any town does not, you know, if, if somebody is a town rabbi, then for the most part, there's nobody over him. Right? He decides, if you're the rov of, you know, any sort of, you know, as long as it's not like, a, you know, sometimes you had lower rank rabbanim in like a village or a town and then you had a, a district rabbi but whatever the top of the heap was whatever whether it was the district rabbi or the city rabbi or whatever there's nobody above him there's no court of appeals that you could go to if you don't like what he says and there's nothing and no one forcing that rabbi to ask the hard questions to an even greater rabbi right, so in that sense there is Prima facie, prima facie, right? On the surface of it, there is this radical horizontal distribution. But at the same time, right, and that's how things were formulated at the you know at the basic level, right? There was no formal hierarchy. But there was an informal hierarchy, right? People got questions. If there was any sort of sensitivity in the questions, they would go and they would ask, they would they would kick it up. They would kick it up a notch. They would ask someone else. And who were they asking? That's the question. Well, that, who do they trust? Right? So there's a supply side and there's a demand side. When are the situations where somebody is going to kick the question up to the next level? And when you do, who do you trust? Who do I even know about? Right? And we're talking about in days before rapid communication. So the question of how quickly can I get an answer is also... Uh, a major part of the, a major part of the question here, a major part of the of the decision, who to ask. Right. So this is a question of who decides who decides. Right? The local rabbi, and it's usually rabbis and not balabatim that are asking the major poskim. 
Meaning, if you look at, let's say, the Shilas Tshuvas of the Maharsham, or the or the Chasam Sofer, they're writing Tshuvas to other rabbis. They're not writing Tshuvas to Baal Batim. Right? And that's the nature of this informal hierarchy. Right? That you have local Rabbanim, and it emerges out of those local Rabbanim, out of those networks of local Rabbanim, there emerges a hierarchy. People find out somehow the information is transmitted that this one particular Rav is someone you can trust. And that's the nature of, that's the nature of, um, <clears throat> that's the structure of halacha, the creation and reception of halacha. That's how it happens. That's where the sausage is. That's how the sausage is made. Right? People say that, you know, was it Bismarck that said, if you like law and you like sausage, then you should never look at how either one of them is made? Well, I, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking a hard look at how halacha is made. And I got to tell you, I actually like, I, I think it's inspiring because you do see this constant tension between, you know, the, the, the local rabbi, the one who's asking the questions, he feels it from both sides. He's at, he's, he, he, has, he has to deal with his community. And he also needs to know what the boundaries are, how far outside of the norm he can step. And he needs to, if he is going to take a step like that, he needs to have, he needs to turn to somebody that has broader shoulders. So that if somebody says, oh, how could you do this? But, you know, didn't, uh, wasn't the minute this, or didn't it used to be this? And how could you go against him? You say, look, I have a tshuva from the Rebbe Yehuda, from the Chasam Sofer, from Rabbi Akiva Eger, from the Marsham, from the Hare Besamim, whoever it is. And now I have, I'm backed up. I have support. And, and that's somebody that's credible. So that's how halacha, you know, we're talking about recent centuries. If you go back further than that, the truth of the matter is you can see it in other places too. You can see it in, obviously it wasn't, you know, what I'm describing now is probably more true of the 18th and 19th centuries, but you do have similar situations, you know, in um, in earlier centuries as well. You do have, there, there was, where there was no formal hierarchy, right? There was nobody that said that the Rosh was the guy, that Maram Rutenberg is the guy, but everybody somehow knew it and they were writing thousands of tshuvas. Again, they did not have any formal authority to be, they were not the chief rabbis. There was no law that said that if you don't know the answer to the halakha question, Mr. Local Rabbi, then you have to send the question to the Rashba. There was no such law, right? Anything that emerges, emerges from the ground up. Anything that emerges, emerges informally and spontaneously. That is the, what I would call, the natural state of halacha, at least as it developed from you know, the time that we can refer to it as halacha, meaning the prehistory of halacha, what, what happens before the Mishnah, um, it's not really part of, you know, we can't examine it historically because there's no historical record of it. You know, we're talking about in terms of the history of halacha as practiced, this has been the model, that there is this give and take, that there is this on one hand, it's very much affected and shaped by the rabbanim who are codifying things, the rabbis who are issuing the decisions, 
and accumulating the decisions and, 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 and collecting the decisions and codifying the decisions. But at the same time, it's also being shaped by how the people, the communities, the people with skin in the game uh, receive and accept those rulings. That's, that's how it works. And in order for that to function, there, has, there, there can't be too much distance between the people at the top, meaning the, the, the people at the top of this informal hierarchy, and the balabatim, the people with skin in the game who are, who are the ones that have to accept and observe these, these rulings. Okay, that will set the stage for what we're going to talk about next, which is how this applies, you know, in Israel today. Um, and that will be part three of, that will be part three of Down the Rabbit Hole. But here, you know, this is really, today's podcast is a distillation of a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and working on for the last decade or so in terms of how halacha functions as a real, as a real system, um, and how it doesn't function as a real system. So until then, this has been Down the Rabbi Hole in the sub-series called Down the Rabbinet Hole, part two, and uh, we'll continue with part three next week or some other time.